morning, family. Today we'll be reading from Mark 14, starting at verse 12. Mark 14, starting at verse 12. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house where he enters, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth. One of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Good. Well, Ruby, thank you very much indeed. I've always wondered what hymn they sang when they were getting ready to go out to the Mount of Olives. I wonder if they did it as well as that song we sang earlier with the sign language. Perhaps they did. I don't know. Well, it's, um, it's a busy day at St Barnabas. Um, after the service, uh, White and I have the great privilege of uh, doing the baptism of privilege and of faith um, in our swimming pool at home. And as I've been thinking about that during the week, I've discovered a newfound respect for John the Baptist. Because as I look out at the weather today, uh, I'm reminded, of course, it can't have been sunny every day by the Jordan River, and he had to baptise thousands of people. And uh, so White and I are not going to complain as we go down into the waters with Faye and Privy. You're all invited to please come through. It is lovely, I think, to witness the baptism of a Christian. So do please come along for that and uh, for the students we'll make sure that you get back to college afterwards. 
And then also just to say that we've got the second of these worship workshops tonight. We had the first one last Sunday and I thought it was absolutely brilliant. Um, I really do encourage you to uh, join us online for that at half past six this evening. And if you'd like the link and you haven't got it, please speak to Alice and she'll send it to you. And then lastly, we had our vision day last Sunday, which was great. Um, Members needed to sign that they were here. So if you're a member and you forgot to sign the register, uh, it has thoughtfully been provided for you again this morning. Uh, Do please make sure you sign that you were here last week before you leave today. Good. Well, let's have our Bibles open. And um, as we come to the Word of God and prepare ourselves to celebrate the Lord's Supper, I'm going to pray and ask for the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, we we do thank you for the enormous privilege of opening your Word and, and holding it in our hands. And we pray now that you would open our lives and hold them in your hands. So that as we read about you in the pages of scripture, our hearts might be warmed with a new awareness of your love and our minds might be filled with your truth and our lives might be equipped to serve and to glorify your holy name and we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, one of the consequences of the pandemic is that we no longer get to have meals with our friends quite as frequently as we used to. And on Friday night I realised just how much I've been missing that when Gillian and I actually did have a lovely meal with friends and we had a splendid time. And uh, I was reminded that when we have a meal with friends, uh, something is happening that is actually far deeper than merely satisfying our need for food. Because it actually strengthens us, it it renews us, it refreshes us uh, in a very special and unique way as those who've been created by God for friendship. For as God said, it is not good for a man to be alone. Now this morning we're thinking about the origins of the most important meal of all the Lord's Supper. Over the last 2,000 years, people have had all kinds of different ideas about the Lord's Supper. I think it's probably one of the most painted scenes in the New Testament. Some of those ideas are really helpful, others not so much. So this morning, I think it's good for us to be travelling back to the first century and considering what Mark wanted the first generation of Christians to know about it. Now, if you were with us uh, last week in Mark 14, you'll remember that we met two people who responded to the Lord Jesus in totally opposite ways. One of them was a woman uh, who was so terribly grateful for what Jesus had done for her that she anointed him with very expensive perfume. The other, of course, was Judas, who was busy plotting how to kill him. And these two people were a reminder for us that everybody in the world is either moving towards Christ or away from Christ. According to the Bible, there's no third option. 
Some of us this morning are very grateful that God has caused us to come to Christ. But of course, there are many people we know who are hostile to Jesus and are moving away from him as quickly as possible. Now, I think our passage this morning is even more searching. Because as they share the Last Supper with Jesus, we begin to realise that there's only one person at the table who is truly worthy. Uh, Some of those there are deserters. One of them is a traitor. So at this meal, no one is worthy apart from Jesus Christ. And that's reflected in the way that Mark has written his account. It's important to see how Mark orders his material. He's a very careful writer. So there are 15 verses in our section. And uh, again, Mark has arranged them into a kind of sandwich. Uh, The first five verses tell us that Jesus is in complete control. We might say he's the king. The last five verses remind us that Jesus is a loving saviour. And then in the middle section, those middle five verses, there is tremendous evil. And it's as if the section begins by telling us Jesus is the master. It ends by telling us he's the lover. And in between there is a massive problem. If you think about it, um, it's a surprise to find these these three things so closely together. I mean, if Jesus is in complete control, why is there a traitor at the table? Why not eliminate him? If God is absolutely sovereign over all things, why not just rub out all evil immediately? Equally, if there's a traitor at the table, why is Jesus so very loving? These, I think, are important questions. So with these great questions in the back of our minds, let's consider these three sections carefully together. The first five verses we're going to look at under the heading Great Control. Then the next five verses under the heading Great Evil. And then the last five verses under the heading, Great Love. So firstly then, Great Control, verses 12 to 16. Come with me to verse 12. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? In other words, Lord, it's time for us to remember our rescue from Egypt. Where do you want us to do it? Now, scholars reckon that uh, during Passover week, uh, at least a million extra people arrived in Jerusalem, which in those days was not much more than a town. So given the vast crowds that would have been filling the streets... It's amazing to me that Jesus says what he does in verse 13. Can we all see verse 13 in our Bibles? Jesus is speaking to two of the disciples and he says, Go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Now, 
I read that and I think to myself, really? I mean, that's impossible, isn't it? A million extra people have just arrived in in this town. Humanly speaking, there is zero possibility of bumping into a total stranger. And yet Jesus doesn't think so. As far as he's concerned, there's absolutely no possibility that they'll miss him. Jesus is in complete control. So he continues at the end of verse 13, follow him, say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He'll show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, make preparations for us there. Now I ask you, how does this work? How does Jesus actually do this? How do you walk into an overcrowded city and meet just the right person? I mean, there were no cell phones. They couldn't send one another a WhatsApp. And why does the owner of the house have a big spare room available during the busiest week of the year? I mean, surely they were all booked up weeks in advance, weren't they? So, how did Jesus arrange this? Can I say, if you think this is difficult for Jesus you need to rethink Jesus. Because if you're going to understand the cross, it's absolutely vital to realise that even while the various groups are plotting to get rid of Jesus, he's got everything under control. That's how Jesus does his work. And the more I think about it, the more I think these five verses, verses 12 to 16 are actually a mini-version of the entire work of Christ in accomplishing his mission. And he's the only one that can do this. That's why Jesus is never threatened by anybody. He's the only one who can predict the future accurately, down to the tiniest detail. And he's in total control, whether he's organising a rescue for the world or a room for a meal. Now, I think we find this difficult to believe, don't we, when things go wrong? I confess, I find it difficult to believe when things go wrong. I think, as I suspect most of you do, that if he's in control, and uh, if he's loving, everything's going to be marvellous. But you see, again and again in the scriptures, we're told that he is in control, and he is loving, and... He's going to use the times when things are not so great because he's in control of those as well. So friends, can I say, and this is the first thing this morning, I want you to lock into your mind every single day for the rest of your life that Jesus Christ controls the cosmos and every single cell in your body. He's in total control of everything great or small. So lock that into your mind when bad things happen. Don't lose your grip on that reality. So that's the first thing, the great control of Jesus. Second, in this passage there is also great evil, verses 17 to 21. So there they are sitting at the table 
and this must have been a real conversation stopper, don't you think? Jesus says, one of you will betray me. Now Jesus knows perfectly well that Judas has been plotting. He knows. Even the Old Testament said that somebody was going to betray the Messiah. So, for example, Psalm 41 verse 9, Even my close friend whom I trusted, he who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Well, you can't have a more accurate prediction than that. And you'll notice that having made this shocking prediction, Jesus then goes on and he narrows the circle. So at the end of verse 18, who is this person? It's one who's eating with me. I imagine by this time people are beginning to shuffle a little uncomfortably on their seats, aren't they? Now it is possible that in this very large upper room, which by some miracle hadn't been booked weeks in advance, that there were more than just the twelve disciples sharing the Passover meal. And therefore, Jesus narrows down the list of possible suspects even more. Verse 20, it's one of the twelve. And then he goes even further. And he says, it's one who dips bread into the bowl with me. And uh, in the accounts from Luke and John, they say that Jesus was talking quite specifically about Judas. Now I want to go down a little side road with you for just a moment, and I want us to consider together whether Judas is actually free to do what he's doing. Or is he perhaps just a puppet? Of course, we all like to think, don't we, that we are completely free, that we have free will. Can I say that's not quite right? The truth is that we are not entirely free from our sins, for example. Uh, if you doubt that, uh, just try not lying and not thinking wrong things this week and see how far you get. And I guarantee by Monday lunchtime you'll see that I'm right. So we're not entirely free from our sins. And we're not free from the consequence of our sins either, which is, of course, death and judgment. So, friends, the truth is that we're not actually quite as free as we think we are. But having said that, we're not puppets either. Because somehow... Almighty God has arranged things so that we're not going to be able to boast about how great we are. And we're not going to be able to blame somebody else for our mistakes, for how bad we are. No, we are 100% responsible for all the choices we make. Which means, of course, we desperately need to receive salvation from God for our sin. So, have you got the picture? God is completely sovereign and we are completely responsible. And somehow those two parallel tracks run in parallel all the way through the Bible. So, on the one hand, Judas is not able to be perfect, but he is responsible for his choices. And at the same time, you and I 
are not able to be perfect. But we are responsible for our choices. Now the great sin that Judas commits here is that he knowingly walks away from Christ. How do we know that? Well, we know it because Jesus says the most terrible words at the end of verse 21. Did you notice those as Ruby read them for us? Jesus says, it would be better for Judas if he had not been born. Now, we know from the other Gospels that uh, after he betrays Jesus, Judas is remorseful, not repentant, he's remorseful. Uh, He comes back and he throws the money he was given into the temple, he bursts into tears, he goes and hangs himself. But Jesus says that the really tragic decision that Judas made was walking away from the Saviour. And uh, obviously if you walk away from the Saviour, well there's no salvation, is there? It's pretty obvious. You see, if Judas had betrayed Christ and then come back to Christ and fallen on his knees and asked for mercy, he would have been forgiven. Have you thought of that? Of course he would. But he didn't. So I come back to what I said at the beginning. That at the Last Supper, the only worthy person at the table is Jesus. At the table there are people who are going to desert him. There's a traitor. There's someone who's going to deny him. The only worthy person at the table is Jesus. Now when we see this, uh, when we begin to see this, we can start to work out what I'm going to call the two wires of salvation. I wonder if you've thought of salvation this way. The first wire is that we are all very needy. The other is that Jesus has got wonderful news. And you see, when those two wires connect together in your prayer of faith, you become a believer. So you see, Jesus knows precisely what Judas is up to. And Jesus knows what I am up to. You don't know what I'm up to, but Jesus does. And I don't know what you're up to, but Jesus does. Everything, everything is known to him. And the wonderful thing is that he knows exactly what we're like, past, present and future, and yet he still offers his love to us without limit. So, can you see that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we don't come to the table saying to ourselves, well, I'm all right, really. Um, I'm a pretty good person. Actually, really rather better than practically everybody else in the room. Of course, that's nonsense. What we do is we come to the table saying, actually, the truth is, I am a deserter, just like the disciples. So you see, when the New Testament says, as it does, that we are to examine ourselves before we come to the Lord's table, 
That is not so that we will award ourselves top marks and declare that we actually deserve the bread and grape juice. Rather, we are to recognise that we are great sinners like everybody else, but we have a great Saviour. So can you see that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we, we come in our hearts with a sense of our own hopelessness but also with a sense of his massive grace. And that's one of the reasons why I actually respect those people in church who might not take the Lord's Supper, uh, who say to themselves, look, the truth is, I've never actually put my faith in Jesus, so I'm not going to pretend. I respect that. I hope you do too. Because, you see, this coming to the table is for those who are unworthy but full of gratitude for God's amazing grace. Friends, don't let's forget that Judas was at the Last Supper. Judas was there taking the bread, taking the cup, and he was given those things by Jesus. And surely that proves, doesn't it, that taking the bread, taking the grape juice, that can't save you. And it doesn't matter who gives it to you. That person can't possibly save you. And you cannot be saved unless your heart is broken for sin and you're grateful for salvation. So, When we come to the Lord's table today, we would do well to remind ourselves that we are deserters, but full of gratitude. So are you with me so far? In our text, we see that Jesus has great control. But we also see this tremendous evil, which Jesus is going to deal with. And he's going to deal with it because of his great love, which is actually our third point this morning, verses 22 to 26. Now, when the Lord Jesus says to the disciples, take and drink, I think these words are so well known to most of us that we practically go to sleep. A couple of years ago, an archaeologist discovered a circle of stones in Scotland And uh, the Historical Society of Great Britain got really excited and immediately announced that they were 4,500 years old and they launched a major research project. Unfortunately, the following week, they received an email from the man who owned the property who said he actually uh, put the stones there only 20 years ago. So the Historical Society was terribly disappointed. They had to scratch the research project. The point is that the arrangement of those stones looked very old, but actually it was very up to date. And here we've got some very, very old words in front of us in Mark chapter 14, but with fresh, absolutely up-to-date significance for our lives this morning. Remember that this is the Passover meal as well as being the Last Supper of Jesus on earth. They've obviously had the lamb and the herbs and now it's time for them to take the bread and the cup which was part of the Passover meal. And as Jesus takes the bread, uh, 
This is the normal thing that would have been spoken at Passover. The head of the home would have said, this is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. That's what the head of the home would normally say. But in verse 22, you'll notice Jesus announces something brand new. And instead of saying, this is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt, he says, this is my body. And he breaks it. Then in verse 23 he takes the cup and again he announces something brand new. He says, this is my blood of the covenant. Some translations, the blood of the new covenant. And one writer reflecting on all of this says, Jesus is reinterpreting the Passover meal in terms of his death. I think that's a very good summary of what's going on. Jesus reinterprets the Passover meal in terms of his death. And what Jesus is doing is he's saying, look, no longer are you to cast your mind back to Egypt as the great rescue. From now on, you're to cast your mind back to my death as the great rescue. Now I ask you, who on earth would dare to do this? Hmm? I mean, what about Moses? Can we imagine Moses uh, having been given the instructions about the Passover by God just a few weeks previously? Can we imagine Moses daring to say, well, we're getting a bit tired of this. We know these words rather well. I think it's time we had a change. Or can we imagine perhaps King David? I mean, after all, he was the king of Israel. Can we imagine him saying, I think it's time we sort of breathe some fresh life into all of this. I'm going to write a completely new liturgy. Well, Jesus isn't Moses or David. He's the Son of God. And he's teaching disciples everywhere that rescue is available because of his death. Now, I wonder whether I need to say this, but let me say it anyway. I hope we all know that the bread and the wine, or the grape juice, are symbols There's no magic in the bread and the wine. Uh, The reformers tuned into this 500 years ago. We seem to have forgotten it. But they said, what could be more confusing than for Jesus to be sitting at the table in his body announcing that the bread had become his body? Well, that would be confusing, wouldn't it? One of the leading reformers said, If the cup was the new covenant, well, we've obviously lost the new covenant because no one's got the cup that Jesus used that night. So it's perfectly obvious, blindingly obvious, these things are symbols. The bread is a symbol of his body, which is going to be broken, and the wine or the grape juice is the symbol of his blood, which is going to be shed So what is Jesus doing here? Well, he's directing their attention to the day that we call Good Friday where his body and his blood will be sacrificed in their place 
so that every believer can go free. But that's not all. Because in verse 25, and we see verse 25, he announces another day, a final day, which is still to come. And it's the day when Jesus will eat and drink in the fellowship of his people in the kingdom of God. So, have you got the picture? Here we are today. Uh, It is a particular day. And we're looking back to the first Good Friday and we're saying that's when our rescue was achieved. And we're also looking forward to the day when all of Christ's people will be with him in a feast which he both promises and proves. And I know we read this and we find it difficult to believe. But you see, everything in Jesus' plan here, everything is moving towards the future. And you and I have got one person who came into the world and uniquely impacted the world and has told us about these things with proof and with promise. These things are true, he says. My death is the event that will achieve your salvation and the day at the end is when you receive it in its fullness. So keep on trusting me. Which means, you see, that Christians are people who stand on the promises of Jesus. That's why we pray the promises every day as a church. And we continue in our Christian journey with very good reason. I want to bring you back to the structure of this passage as we come to a close. This is how these 15 verses fit together. Just think about this. There are five verses on the kingship. And then at the end there are five verses on the Saviour. And then in the middle there are five verses on the sinners. And I like to think of it this way. The five on the King and the five on the Saviour are rather like arms wrapping themselves around the sinners. You see, friends, just imagine if Almighty God uh, only accepted moral people. And uh, there may be somebody listening to the recording this morning and perhaps you're thinking, well, I'm sure the people in St. Barnabas are charming, very nice people. But you see, if God only accepted moral people, uh, you and I would boast one day and would be desperate the next which means, of course, we'd have no assurance. Or imagine if God only, if God accepted everybody in the world and God said to the world, you're all going to be saved, all of you. Uh, I don't care what you think, I don't care what you've done, I don't care what you want, you're all going to be saved. Well, you see, we'd have no reason to be grateful, would we? our hearts would be totally unmoved. And because God would seem not to care about the way that we've lived, we'd have no hope for anything better. And I think that means we'd be terribly miserable, wouldn't it? 
But you see, the gospel message is that God comes to us and says, you don't deserve to be at my table, but my grace is sufficient. So that means you are perfectly loved, perfectly forgiven, perfectly accepted. I rather like the fictional story of the Jewish boy on the night of the first Passover in Egypt. There he is, he wakes up in the middle of the night and he discovers that the blood that was taken from the lamb they'd eaten the previous evening was put in a bowl. And the blood in the bowl is meant to have been put over the doorpost before they went to bed so that when the angel of death sees it, it passes over the house and they'll all be safe. But the blood is still in the bowl. So he leaps out of bed and rushes into his father's bedroom. Dad, quick, put the blood over the doorpost. Now the point is that by doing that, they're moving from hearing the word of God to trusting the word of God. Do you see the point? And God calls all people today who deserve only his judgment, and of course that's everybody, isn't it? Not just to hear about the sacrifice of Christ, but to make it their own. By telling Christ on their knees, if possible, in prayer, that you are trusting what Jesus has done for you. Now you see, as you do that, the arms of this great king and this loving saviour are wrapped around the sinner and you find yourself forgiven, accepted and loved forever. And that's why Faye and Privilege are going to be baptised this morning. And that is, of course, something of what Mark is telling us in this passage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for not just telling us about these wonderful things, but for giving us such a wonderful person in the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would help all who are here this morning and all who are listening to respond in faith and in confidence and with great joy. And we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you.